Now, as your pastor, I can pray with you. I can comfort you. I can even weep with you. But I can't call the dead back to life. There's a few times I'd love to have done that. But it's way above my pay grade. In fact, it's way above everybody's pay grade. You see, man, human beings, we can pray for healing, but only God can heal. We can pray for salvation, but only God can save. We can pray for miracles, but only God can do a miracle. Today, Jesus wants a relationship with you. As a human being, he's experienced everything that you have experienced. He's known sadness and happiness. He's known grief and sorrow. He's known laughter and joy. He's faced every temptation you have faced. That's what the Bible says. Welcome to the Heartland Free Sermon Podcast. We're so happy to have you. If you're a first-time listener and you'd like to get to know more about us as a church, click the link in the podcast description. And if you'd like to fill out our online connection card, you can do that there as well. Thanks for joining us, and let's get into a fantastic message. Today, uh, we are continuing our series of messages on God Speaks, We Respond. Uh, Everything in this whole series is about having a relationship with God. How do we walk with God day by day, moment by moment? The Lord wants more than just belief in him, okay? You know, he wants to walk with us. It's, it's sort of like uh, making all of these vows at the wedding and then uh, ignoring your spouse after that, you know? <laughs> That's the way a lot of Christians today live. It's just, okay, I made my vows to God and I pledged my allegiance to him and I'm, I believe in him and so forth. But uh, living with him day by day, moment by moment, uh, that is what the Lord wants for you. And so we're going to, we're focusing in on that. We're taking five glimpses from the Old Testament, which we wrapped up last week. Now five glimpses from the New Testament. And then we're going to do five glimpses from the prophetic passages, which will happen yet in the future. Okay, so 15 messages in this series, God Speaks, We Respond. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for the joy that we have as uh, believers in you, to not only believe in you, Lord, not only to express faith in you, but to walk with you moment by moment, day by day. Uh, Father, help us with this. Uh, This is a sort of a mysterious thing for a lot of us, Lord. And how do we walk with you? How do we sense your presence? Um, How do we communicate with you? Help us, Lord, as we focus on that this day in Christ's name. Amen. Way back in the 1150s, we're talking a long time ago, a young man named Richard made the long journey from Scotland to Paris, France. With all of his heart, Richard wanted to know if God is real. And more than that, he wanted to know if he could actually have a relationship with his creator. Could he know God personally? Upon reaching Paris, he made a beeline for the Abbey of St. Victor in his quest for answers, 
and he dove into the word of God like a beggar who's just found a stash of food. As he studied the Bible, Richard found himself absolutely fascinated by the concept of the Trinity. Why would God exist as one being, yet in three persons? Why would God exist as these persons being distinct and yet unified? Why? At first, Richard was confused. But as he continued to pray and seek God, one day it dawned on him why God chose to unveil himself as a trinity. It had to be that way, Richard thought to himself. After all, if God was only one person, how could he know anything about love? Before he created the world, God would have had no one to love. But what if God were two persons? Richard thought to himself, that also would fall short. If God were only two persons, their love would be exclusionary, sort of like a couple who fall in love and, you know, are oblivious to everyone else. No, Richard concluded, God must exist in three persons. After all, when the love between two persons is happy and healthy and secure, they desire to share their love. And that's where the Holy Spirit comes in. For all eternity, the Father and Son are delighted to share their love and joy with the Spirit. In his book, Delighting in the Trinity, Dr. Michael Reeves points out that God didn't become loving at some point in his existence. Rather, the truth is, God is love. God is love. That's what the Bible says. 1 John 4.16. He's always been love. He always will be love. And Malachi 3.6 assures us, I, the Lord, do not change. Which is great news for us, right? <laughs> we as human beings, we're fickle and flighty. We have moods that can change like the weather. But God isn't like that. Hebrews 13, 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. From eternity past, Jesus loved the Father. The Father loved the Son. They both loved the Spirit, and the Spirit loved them. Now, the triune God stands in stark contrast with the God of the Muslims. On the Dome of the Rock, which is sort of the signature building in Jerusalem, on the Dome of the Rock are inspired, inscribed these words, Allah has no associate. Allah is one. Jesus is only a messenger. Allah has no son. Far be it that he should have a son. And do not say that God is three. And over and over again, all over this building, it, that message is printed there in Arabic. God, Allah has no son. Is it any wonder then that men in the Muslim culture often seem so authoritarian, 
lacking in gentleness and kindness and empathy and forgiveness and grace. After all, Allah is presented as a solitary being, devoid of community. The triune God of the Bible is not like that. The fact that our God has eternally existed within a loving community of three is a clear demonstration that he's able to define for us what true love is all about. In Matthew chapter 3, as Jesus begins his public ministry, he starts by being baptized. And he does it in full view of the crowds who had come to hear John the Baptist preach. And as the Son of God comes up out of the water, the Spirit of God descends on him like a dove, lands on his shoulder. At the same time, our Father God audibly speaks from heaven, this is my Son, whom I love with him, I am well pleased. Do you know that our Heavenly Father wants to have the same type of relationship with you? The same type of relationship he has with the Son and the Spirit, he wants to commune with you. You bear his image. He wants to be in relationship with you. He is not a God who doesn't care who lives away up there. He's here today, right now, this moment. He wants to walk with you. Whatever you're going through today, he wants to be there for you. The very fact that God exists within a community of three demonstrates this. That's what this message is all about today. Each member of the Trinity reflects certain attributes that facilitate community. Each member of the Trinity reveals the depths of God's love for you individually. Now let's look first at Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus wants a relationship with you. But first, let's look at some background. Matthew 3.13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John, but John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. So late in the year 29 AD, Jesus began his public ministry. Now Luke 3.23 tells us that he was about 30 years old. If he was born early in 2 BC, which is the date that I favor, uh, and I'm getting that from the star of Bethlehem, Rick Larson's star of Bethlehem, and the dating methods that he used there. If that is the case, Jesus would have been almost 31 years old in the fall of 29 AD. Now remember, there's no year zero. 
uh, you go from 1 BC to 1 AD, okay? Now also, you may remember that John the Baptist is a cousin to Jesus. He was born about six months earlier. And according to Luke 1, Jesus' Mary mother, uh, uh, mother Mary and John's mother Elizabeth stayed with each other for about three months while they were both pregnant. Early in the life of Jesus, no one had any doubt that he was fully a human being. And after he was baptized, here in Matthew chapter 3, no one who was there that day should have any doubts that he was also fully God in human flesh. After all, it isn't every day that God the Father speaks audibly from heaven. And there is only one human being to whom he says, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Over the next three and a half years, Jesus would offer an abundance of further evidence that he was indeed God in the flesh. For one thing, he fulfilled 333 prophecies that had been made about him in the Old Testament. He also did hundreds of miracles. Some 30, a bit more than that, are recorded in the scriptures. There was certainly hundreds more. On three occasions, he raised the dead. The widow of Nain's son, Luke 7, Jairus' daughter, Luke 8, and Lazarus, Lazarus, John 11. And just in case anyone was still wondering, Jesus made it crystal clear in John chapter 8 that he was alive even before Abraham was born. And then two chapters later, John chapter 10, he stated clearly that he and the heavenly father are one. His Jewish opponents were so outraged they took up stones to kill him, but each time he slipped through their hands. Today, the fact that Jesus is both fully God and fully human has a very personal application to each of us. If you're like me, you've had some struggles with worry and anxiety. Isn't it comforting to know that Jesus had these same kind of struggles? After all, Jesus sweat drops of blood. There in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he agonized over his upcoming suffering. This tells me that Jesus can relate to my fears and my anxieties. He understands me. You know, empathy goes a long way, doesn't it? Jesus cried his eyes out at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. Jesus comforted Lazarus' sisters. But he also did something else. Because, you see, he's not only fully human, but he's fully God. In John eleven forty three, 43, he spoke in a loud voice to a man who had been dead for four days, and he said, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus walked out of that tomb 
can imagine all the wrappings around him after he had been dead for four days. Now, as your pastor, I can pray with you. I can comfort you. I can even weep with you. But I can't call the dead back to life. Sorry about that. There's a few times I'd love to have done that. But it's way above my pay grade. In fact, it's way above everybody's pay grade. You see, man, human beings, we can pray for healing, but only God can heal. We can pray for salvation, but only God can save. We can pray for miracles, but only God can do a miracle. Today, Jesus wants a relationship with you. As a human being, he's experienced everything that you have experienced. He's known sadness and happiness. He's known grief and sorrow. He's known laughter and joy. He's faced every temptation you have faced. That's what the Bible says. Greed, jealousy, envy, lust, anger, laziness, fear. He's been there. He can identify with you. And he can show you how to conquer temptation. He can show you that there is a way of escape if you come to him and ask for help. Yes, Jesus is fully human, but he's also fully God. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. There is only one human being who's ever lived that can make a promise like that. And that is the man who was born in Bethlehem escaped to Egypt, raised in Nazareth, and now baptized by his cousin John in the Jordan River. Jesus is the God-man, and he wants a relationship with you. <clears throat> Excuse me. He wants to be your friend, both a human friend <clears throat> that can identify with you and a divine friend that can move mountains for you when you need that. Can I ask you today, do you have a relationship with him? Oh, how Jesus wants that. He says, come unto me, all you who are weary, heavy-hearted, and I will give you rest. Come to him. Now let's move on to the second member of the Trinity. In Matthew 13, we come across the Holy Spirit. Matthew 3, rather. Verse 16 says, As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. The Holy Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove. Now this does not necessarily mean that a dove flew down and landed on him. But there was some sort of physical manifestation that indicated that the presence of the Holy Spirit had come upon Jesus. The Greek word is erkomai. 
It means to come upon, to arrive, to land on, to fall on, to enter into. The presence of the Holy Spirit landed on Jesus in some sort of tangible way. Now we know that Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. In fact, according to Luke 1, that was true of both Jesus and John the Baptist. And yet there was a further empowering for ministry that occurs here at the Lord's baptism. So what does that mean for us? Well, the Bible teaches that two of the key roles that the Holy Spirit plays in your life and mine is as a convictor and a comforter, okay? In John 16, 8, the Bible says, when the Spirit comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin. That's the bad stuff you do. And in regard to righteousness, that's the good stuff you should do. And in regard to judgment, that you will be held accountable. It is the Holy Spirit that reveals to you the fact that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. No amount of preaching, no amount of pleading or pointing of fingers is going to bring about conviction of sin. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. The Holy Spirit is also the one who convicts us of righteousness, the good stuff that we should be doing. Now what does it look like to live a godly life? The Holy Spirit points to Jesus as our model and our example. And of course, we all fall painfully short of that, don't we? The third thing that the Holy Spirit convicts us of is judgment, that there will be a day of final reckoning for all of us. When Satan and everyone who rebels against God, they will be dealt with and eternally punished because no one can escape the final judgment. So the first way in which the Holy Spirit relates to us is as a convictor by revealing our need for God and our need for the word of God day by day, moment by moment. Now, once you have committed your life to Christ and have had your sins washed away by the blood of Christ and you begin a personal relationship with him, the Holy Spirit continues to guide you. One of the key ways he does that is to illuminate the scriptures. Ezekiel 36, 30, uh, 27 says, I will put my spirit in you, and why? To move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Now we're entering into the second role that the Holy Spirit plays in your life and mine, and that is as a comforter. John 14, 26, Jesus said, the comforter, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things 
and remind you of everything I have said to you. The Greek word for comforter is paraclete. It is translated in many ways because there is no one English word that fits. Some translations use the word counselor. Others say helper. Still others say advocate. The word literally means one who comes alongside you. The Holy Spirit is the tangible presence of God that is continually with us. When I pray for someone who's going through a deep valley, I just did that a couple of times this morning already. I appeal to the Holy Spirit to comfort them. That's what we need the most, isn't it? Someone to come alongside you, walk through the valley with you. I love Psalm 139, which says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. You see, the Holy Spirit is not a force. The Holy Spirit is a person. He relates to us personally. One of the best books out there, if you want to dip further into studying the Holy Spirit, is What Everyone Needs to Know About the Holy Spirit by Don Stewart. In fact, Don has written two more books about the Holy Spirit entitled How the Holy Spirit Works in Our Lives and Divine Healing, Does God Heal Everyone? What I love about Don Stewart is he brings everything back to the scriptures. And you see, the scriptures have so much to say about the Holy Spirit. Did you know that the Holy Spirit is mentioned over 90 times in the Old Testament? And over 260 times in the New Testament? Here in Matthew 3.16, we see that the Spirit descends upon Jesus like a dove. Throughout the scripture, the dove is a symbol of gentleness and peace, which is what the comforter, a comforter does, right? Notice also, Matthew 3.16, that the Spirit actually lands on Jesus, filling him, guiding him, empowering him. When the Holy Spirit lands on you, you're going to know it. You're going to feel him directing you away from that which is evil and displeasing to God and toward that which is good and pleasing to God. That's what a convictor does. You know what? I need the Holy Spirit every moment of every day. I call upon him often. He wants to walk with you. Will you invite him to do that? Now this brings us to the third member of the Trinity that we see at the baptism of Jesus, and that is our Heavenly Father. Matthew 3.17 says, And a voice from heaven said, 
This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. All three members of the Trinity participate in the baptism of Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God, is revealed as fully man and fully God. The Holy Spirit descends like a dove, reminding of, of, of us, uh, us of his role as both convictor and comforter. And then God the Father speaks with words that all of us long to hear from a father. First, that we are loved. And second, that we are prized. The Greek word for love is agape, often defined as unconditional love, a love that's not based on performance, but it is based on our status as a child of God. Agape is considered to be the highest form of love known to mankind, and get this, it is distinctively Christian. Christians are ones who introduce the whole idea of agape love. And it is personified by Jesus, who demonstrated the depths of agape love by sacrificing his life for you and shedding his blood to pay the penalty for your sins. Jesus said, greater love is no one than this that a man would lay down his life for his friends. Even today, no one would seriously argue that sacrificing your life for another person is the highest form of love. That's what U.S. Marine Lance Corporal Kyle Carpenter did when he threw himself on a grenade to save the life of a fellow Marine. On November 21st, 2010, Kyle's unit was on patrol in Afghanistan when someone threw a grenade onto a rooftop where they were standing. Kyle was one of the few to ever survive such an experience, but he sustained severe injuries to his face and his right arm, and he lost sight in his right eye. I find it interesting that there have been more citations for the Medal of Honor that have been awarded for falling on grenades to save comrades than any other single act. And the Medal of Honor is our country's highest military de decoration. Heartland family, here's what I want you to know today. Our triune God fell on a grenade for you. Because the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are one. And they all bore the pain of the sacrifice of the cross. That's how much God loves you. Fell on a grenade for you. The Bible says, John 1.12, yet, yet to all who received him, to those who believe on his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent or of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. If you have placed your trust in Christ, you are now a son of God. You are now a daughter of God. That's what that verse says. 
The words that God the Father spoke over Jesus, Matthew 3.17, are the same words that God the Father speaks over you today. This is my son. This is my daughter in whom I am well pleased. And get this. That second phrase that the father spoke, what it means is to be prized, to be favored, to be chosen. Now here is a picture of what it means to be prized. Is that, is that, does that show that? I, I was looking through my pics and I thought, Man, that shows what it means to be prized. That's our little uh, granddaughter, Ellie, when she was a baby. She's, uh, she's now about uh, six years old. And um, that was a very special day. Do you know what, folks? We never outgrow the need to be prized. You realize that? I realize that when I visit ones in the nursing home they want to be prized they want to be prized we never outgrow that I close with this before I had kids I used to laugh at parents who would go bonkers over their kid at a basketball tournament I thought to myself how silly this is And then I had my own kids. You know the feeling, right? I can remember watching my my daughter Kelly play in the state basketball tournament. Annandale High School was in the state tournament. I believe it was her senior year. It was either junior or senior year. And uh, so she uh, she was on the nightly news. I can't remember which one it was, 4, 5, 9, 11, one of those. And she was on for two seconds. And I'm calling up all of our friends and all of our family members. And I say, you got to watch TV tonight. You got to watch TV. You got to see this. Kelly's on the nightly news. The English word special. It's overused, isn't it? But it does fit this sense. When you get married to someone, you do not expect that person to relate to you as simply one of your friends. One of your many friends. When you get married, you want that person to be your special friend, right? Your soulmate. You're one and only. You want to be prized by that person. I don't understand exactly how the Lord is going to do this. But you see, the Bible clearly teaches that we are the bride of Christ. And that has a collective meaning. The entire true church of Jesus Christ is the bride of Christ. And see, there is a sense in which you are one billionth 
of the bride of Christ. And that doesn't seem very special, does it? You know? I mean, you go to a Twins game, you see all of these thousands and thousands of people, and you kind of say, well, who am I? You know, I'm just one little cog in the big operation. But here it is. With God, somehow, some way, you will retain a special relationship with him as an individual, just you. You can't escape the fact that this is what Psalm 139 teaches. This is what one, Psalm 139 says. For you created my inmost being. The singular is used. You knit me together in my mother's womb. You know, I realize, Lord, you also knit a, a billion others in their mother's womb. But this says that you knit me in my mother's womb, okay? I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. Do you see the intimacy? Do you see the, the uh, intensity, the personal investment here? in just making one person. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Isn't that amazing? That does not sound like you are one billionth of the bride of Christ. That sounds like you're special. And that's because you are. In some way, shape, or form, for all eternity, you are going to be special to God. You are going to be unique and prized by him just the way Sue and I were prizing my granddaughter, Ellie. For all eternity, God's going to look at you and he's going to say, my son, my daughter, with you, I'm well pleased. Do you want that for all eternity? 